I am a follower of the Balaganandara school, and I think uh, we should really try to read uh, Balu and understand when he talks about uh, colonial consciousness and when he talks about religions and traditions in India. Because I think the fundamental mistake, I mean, uh, when you talk about Rahul, Raja Ramon Roy or, or kind of Brahma Samaj or Arya Samaj, what essentially happened is they kind of accepted what the Westerners talked about us. You know, they said we were primitive. They said we are primitive. They thought we had a pure Hindu core to which added a lot of superstitions, idolatry. So they wanted to get back to the pure Upanishads, clearing off all the superficial junk, all the priestcraft. So this is basically you're molding yourself in the framework which was provided by the colonials. That is one. Second is the most important thing I think we should understand is we do not have religions in our country. Hinduism is a word which is a kind of an experiential entity for the colonials and they have converted a mass of traditions. Traditions are what constitutes Indian culture and the experience of the uh, colonials, they constructed Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism. And as Balu says, you are in a very brief manner. What we have in India are traditions and religions, they adapted by becoming traditions. Uh, this talk is a summary of Sitaram Koyal's important book, Hindu Society Under Siege which tries to understand the many inimical forces acting against India and the Hindu traditions lie at its core. It's a fundamental Indian cultural ethos, especially the Hindus that are personal and first professional equations with individuals and even groups transcend personal philosophies, religions, and political beliefs. It's the experience of most Hindus, including myself, that are best friends and relationships are many times with Muslims, Christians, and even communists. The author stresses in the book, and so do I, that this is not a criticism at an individual level or even groups of people practicing their own faiths and having their own political beliefs. This book just asks the Hindu society to be aware of the inimical forces, drawing strength from the core doctrines and uh, political philosophy. Indian culture based mainly on Hindu traditions has the characteristic of uh, an indifference to differences, a most genuine solution for uh, multiculturalism and pluralism going beyond the standard tolerances and acceptances. This indifference characterizes all pagan traditions, unfortunately many having gone extinct. The Indian traditions are still going strong despite constant onslaughts. However, the indifference should not stretch to a point of complete silence on the part of Hindu intellectuals. Hindus are not known to attack so much, but a strong defense demands that we know what the inimical forces are, which constantly puts the Hindus on the back foot. Yeah. So Hindus have been incredibly indifferent to describe other cultures and faiths. The others uh, have defined, modified, studied, critiqued, and generally attacked intellectually Hindus, Hinduism, and its traditions. The physical attacks were in the Islamic phase and the initial part of the colonial phase, starting with the Portuguese. The British colonials, though Protestant mainly in their outlook, did not indulge in physical attacks. The reverse has rarely happened. Hindu intellectuals have mostly tried to reform or justify their traditions in the frameworks provided by others. However, people like Ram Swarup and Sitaram Goelji represent a strong group of intellectuals who keep the Indian traditions intact and analyze the other faiths and cultures from a Hindu perspective, which they did with great depth and passion.
important activist, a prolific writer, a historian, and a publisher for the Hindu cause. His first book, How I Became a Hindu, describes his journey from strong Marxist leanings to the rediscovery of his Hindu roots. The Hindu Society Under Siege is an important book which looks at the inimical forces against Hindu society, which an average Indian needs to understand. These are intellectual and dangerous forces which are strongly trying to disrupt the Hindu fabric of the country. And one must strongly realize that Hindu traditions and philosophy hold the only solution to multiculturalism and pluralism of the world today. Now, most Hindus have no problem in accepting Christ as an enlightened person. He would be another great person in line of such people across time and space. Most Hindus would also acknowledge the God of Christians or the Allah of Islam as manifestations of a single divinity. There would be also no issue with Muslims, Christians or people of any faith in line with the fundamental philosophy of Hindu traditions and indifference to differences, as Dr. S. N. Balagangadara says. However, serious issues and frictions arise when Hindu traditions interact with an ideology of monotheism and exclusivity. Previously, it was in the form of physical violence and presently mainly an intellectual violence, which Sitaram Goelji terms as residues of Islamism and Christianism, and these threaten the Hindu way of life. Communism and McCoyalism. Now, these are two other vicious hostile forces. Fortunately, because of Gandhi, communism remained weak before independence. In fact, communists saw in Gandhi a foremost public enemy preventing their entry into the masses. Unfortunately, in the post-independence period, with the right combination of political and academic forces, Communism took over to dominate academia, bureaucracy, and the media. They have continued the intellectual violence of the previous eras with a stronger effect. Finally, a peculiar Hindu intellectual framework occurred, which Goelji terms as Macaulayism. These are the four big forces augmenting each other and presenting a hostile front to the Hindus. They keep the Hindus always on the defensive. And the weeping boy, of course, uh, remains a caste system. The main narrative is to pick up all the social evils and try to give a religious justification in the Hindu texts. So what is the significance of a thriving Hindu civilization to the world? Most importantly, it happens to be the longest surviving civilization of the world with an unimaginable diversity, living in peace. It must hold solutions for harmony and to deal with multiculturalism and for a pluralism which is packing nowadays into smaller geographical areas. Many ancient societies like the Greco-Romans under the onslaught of Christianity, the Arabs before Islam, or the pagan traditions of Americas and Europe have had a sudden interruption or a, or a traumatic transformation due to invasion by monotheistic ideologies, as they were too weak to encounter. Sanatana Dharma or Hindu civilization amazingly survives beginning from onslaughts from the times of Alexander. Attacks continue even today in different forms, and hence there's a need to preserve, protect, and perpetuate the rich artistic, literary, scientific, and spiritual heritage of India. Now, the historical reading of India has always been a series of successful foreign invasions to which Hindu society invariably succumbed, starting from the mythical Aryans in the second millennium BC, and through Alexander, the Muslim invaders from the 7th century of the Common Era, and the Europeans, the colonial historians, and later the oligarch and the Marxist school of historians constantly present a picture of fighting Indian kingdoms 
and an inherently exploitative and oppressive Hindu social system. For the Marxist historians, the invaders were not only liberators on the social and political plane, the Aryan theory is conjectural. It was the inferior of Indian warfare techniques rather than any inferior social cultural environments, which were the cause of failures. And we never had a strong centralized state to tyrannize over its constituent units and invade the neighboring countries. Yet our society was strong based on a highly decentralized but cohesive social fabric made of organic units such as a clan, the caste, village, town, metropolis, country, and empire. Now, Alexander, Queen Semiramis of Babylonia, and Cyrus the Great attacked us, but the United Republics repelled them. Scythians, the Kushanas, and the Hunas ruled briefly after the Mauryan and the Gupta empires, but either lost or integrated into Hindu society. Muslim invaders came in the middle of 7th century with superior ammunition and a forceful ideology. However, the Arab Caliphate could not advance beyond Sindh. Later came the more successful Ghaznavids, the Ghoris, the Kaljis, the Tughlaqs, and the Mughals. However, the Rajputs, the Vijayanagar Empire, the Marathas, the Bundelas, the Jats, the Sikhs could see the end of the Muslim rule by the end by the mid 18th century, when they became essentially powerless. Later came the British and the subtly supported Christian missionary activity, which was truly alien and intensely inimical. Unlike Islam, Christianity was not an officially sanctioned religion. All have been crystallized into present attacks by residues of Islamism, Christianism, to which add Macaulism and Communism. Now, <clears throat> Islamism is the residue of Muslim invasions. It represents a closed cultural attitude, making it impossible for its converts to coexist peacefully and with dignity with other people. It does not refer to any one section of people of Indian society, but to that attitude awarding the monopoly of truth and knowledge to one religion only. There is no empiricism, rationalism, universalism, humanism, and liberalism, the hallmarks of Hindu as well as the modern Western culture. Muhammad Iqbal, who is uh, even Indians are quite fond of quoting, uh, said, no matter if my idiom is Indian, my spirit is that of Hijaz, Makkah and Madan areas of Arabia. Now, Indian Muslim brethren, the flesh and blood of the country, need freedom from Islamism rather than unfair accusations. Many Muslim intellectuals find Islamism repugnant, but their voice remains insignificant. Now, the fundamental attitude of Islamism is that Indian society before Islam was an utter spiritual, moral, and cultural darkness, like in the pre-Islamic Arabia. Islam brought two religion, authentic moral values, humane culture, and progressive social order. The British, though through mostly fraud, aborted the civilizing uh, mission of India, and uh, Pakistan exemplifies the power of Islam, but the rest of India remains an unfinished task. Islam has a right to use all means to convert the Indian Darul Harb, which is a land ruled by non-believers, into Darul Islam, which is a, a land ruled by believers with Islamic law. Now, the strategies for Islamism include many, like sealing the Muslims from rational values by the Malwis, threatening uh, physical violence against Muslims, publicly rejecting Islamism, encouraging Muslims to air as many grievances as possible, generally paint a picture of a, a downtrodden, uh, downtrodden, exploited community, converting Muslim community into a compact vote bank, 
encouraging to agitate for India's support to all relevant and irrelevant national causes, Islamic causes, and causing riots or any pretext ranging from the minor insults to the most major international politics. This is quite evident. Uh, we can see very clearly in the recent CAA or the Palestinian issue, uh, the kind of support which uh, Indian Muslims give for um, segment of Indian Muslims gave for such causes. Uh, simultaneously, there would be pampering and harnessing of Hindu health, secularism, communalism, and fascism become either sacred slogans or words of abuse to block out expressions of Hindu culture in the state apparatus and public life. There is a careful cultivation of these words to malign all organizations, institutions, and parties which dare question Islam and its culture. The Hindus who are championing support of positive Indian nationalism counter by talking about India's multiracial, multi-religious, and multicultural character. Now, the norm uh, created this whole idea of majority and minority and post-independence, the Hindus were never enamored actually by the Hindutva cause. Perhaps it's an irony of decades of appeasement policies that the BJP was an inevitable outcome of the Congress. The socialists and communists have a persistent anti-Hindu animus, and they also hope for tapping into the Muslim vote banks. Fortunately, they are not majorly into positions of political power, except in a few places. Gandhians too patronized with a misunderstanding of nonviolence, an appeasement attitude which Gandhi was also guilty of. Finally, the self-alienated Hindu intellectuals become proponents of Islamism out of sheer antipathy towards Hindu society and culture. For many, the appeasement of minorities and abusing of majorities defines the large-hearted liberals, progressives, and the secularists. Now, Pakistan was not of much help, but in the early since early 70s, Arab petrodollars gave a major push to Islamism. The money went into establishing a powerful press, publishing houses funding of madrasas uh, for teaching Islam, training missionaries to make converts, especially from the weaker Hindu sections, <clears throat> buying land and real estate, storing of arms and training of Muslim tufts were also a part of this financial strategy. The monies for use in funding conferences and demonstrations in support of every Islamic cause, apart from financing politicians, to infiltrate every political party. The finances would also be in bribing Hindu intellectuals, journalists, public workers, and politicians. Their work is to support Islamism, denigrate Hindu culture, especially focusing on the caste system and Dalits, and character assassinate those who oppose Islamism. Now, the British rule crystallized into two residues of Christianism and Macaulayism. Christianism does not refer to any uh, to the Christians in the country who have not shown any marked hostility towards Hindu society and have greatly integrated into the country's ethos. They have not served till now uh, as vehicles of Christianism, except in certain areas of the Northeast. Christianism refers specifically to the numerous Christian missions as operating all over the country, uh, particularly in the so-called tribal belts. Now, the fundamentals of Christianism start by saying that there was no savior in India historically verified, except for the Buddha. Jesus Christ rendered superfluous all Hindu saints and sages. The church specifically chose St. Thomas. 
to win India, who came, but unfortunately died in the hands of a fanatic Brahmin. First century Christians of the South, converted by St. Thomas, established that Christianity is an ancient Indian religion and not a Western import, and it is now the sacred task to make Indians a Christian country. Some Hindu saints merely stumbled upon some truths in the workings of a universal nature and were in fact preparing a long time for the advent of Christ. A Hindu, even if he follows the Ten Commandments or by the Sermon by the Mount, can never escape eternal hellfire unless he is baptized. Now, the source of all these tenets are clearly in the book of uh, Christian religion, claiming a monopoly of truth, the only true God and the only Savior. Taking inspiration from the books, Christianity started its violent record by destroying completely the ancient Greco-Roman traditions. Catherine Mixey has chillingly described this in a book, The Darkening Age. The faith-induced destruction was evident in Europe, Asia Minor, North Africa, Central America, and South America, where many wars amongst different denominations, inquisitions, and the religious wars with Jews and Muslims. In India, too, the first encounter with the Portuguese missionaries was aggressive and violent. The infamous Goa Inquisition killed both Hindus and Muslims, forced conversions, demolished Hindu temples, and, and inaugurated an anti-Brahminism anti by the likes of Francis Xavier, which has uh, by now become the hallmark of all progressive thought and politics in India. Now, fortunately, the colonial understanding of Muslim history was clear in that religion comes in the way of building stable empires. Hence, there was a refusal to patronize Christianity beyond a certain limit. An additional factor was the parallel enlightenment values which were sweeping across Europe. The missionaries were not a part of the official policy, but tacit and subtle support for the missionaries existed in intellectually attacking Hindu scriptures. Thoughts and practices. The rulers were deeply Christian, mainly Protestant in their values. Now, the rulers and missionaries combined to form a commendable intellectual force acting, attacking everything about Indian traditions, more impactful actually, in fact, than the Muslim invasions, which confined mainly to physical attacks. Dr. Balagangadara shows how the discourse of the caste system and religions was entirely an experiential entity of the colonials and the missionaries. Another was the idea of idolatry as elegantly shown by Swagato Ganguly in Idolatry and the Colonial Idea of India. Uh, this is a wonderful book. Uh, it was a justification to, idolatry was a justification to administer a, a despotic state in the name of reason. Idolatry was of course a fabrication of the wily Brahmins representing the false objective values of a culture. From a post-reformation point of view, idolatrous societies did not confirm to the standards of a proper historical progress towards reason and purity. Christian missionaries spread a canard that once uh, that uh, many Hindus voluntarily got themselves crushed during the Puri annual Ratyatra. Some good British officers and liberal politicians prevented a demolition of the temple as an official request. But the word juggernaut, a relentless destroying force, came into being a relic of imagination of the early missionaries. Now, there were strong counter-intellectual forces from the inner side, from the Indian side, uh, in the voices of Swami Vivekananda, the Brahmo Samaj, the Arya Samaj, Anipisa, and Mahatma Gandhi. They were important resistant forces against the relentless 
missionary attacks on the Hindu culture and traditions. Simultaneously, the West also started imbibing the Indian spiritual values uh, popularized by the likes of Ramakrishna Paramhamsa, Sri Aurobindo, Ramana Maharishi, Tagore, and Kumaraswamy. Now, the covert methods of Christian missions include missionary training of natives, which uh, hides the uh, uh, white color. It acts by Hinduizing the outer accoutrements of Christian priests, liturgy, and sacraments. It gears its powerful press and publishing houses for a scholarly critique of Hindu society. The education institutes target the upper class Hindus, even as hospitals and social work attracts attention of the Christian spirit of social service. Another strategy is to run open orphanages and homes for the handicapped where proselytization proceeds safely and unnoticed. The focus remains firmly on remote Hindu tribals equivalent to their non-Hindu status. It funds promising candidates and native missionaries on prolonged Western tours, at the same time encouraging well-off Christians in the West to adopt boys and girls from poor Indian families. The missions also help in financing political campaigns for separate states in areas where Christian population has attained the majority. Now, there's a huge and a free flow of finances from the mission activities. The churches and NGOs in Europe and America remain a big source of money. Breaking India by Raji Malhotra and Neela Kandan is a fantastic resource which exposes the methodology of uh, the Christian missions. Recently, surprisingly, some missionaries are talking about in a new language of radicalism and revolutionism. By associating with the causes of poor tribals, they emulate the example of a communist leaders of a synthetic radicalism. As the West loses fascination for its faith, there's a bold bid to penetrate the East. Islamic and communist countries are hard to penetrate, and now with India providing a very soft target. Now, a big uh, residue of uh, colonial rule is metabolism. It is a successful educational policy producing a class of Indians trapped in the same colonial ideas about India. The main idea is that there was no worthwhile education before the British. There were semi-educated teachers imparting some rudimentary arithmetic, reading and writing to mostly upper castes and Brahmins. Amongst other ideas, a strong one, of course, is that Brahmins are denying education to other groups. Now, Dharampal, by his uh, scholarly work, shattered this idea of a primitive caste-based educational system without any achievements. He studied most extensively the old British archives and showed the falsity of this narrative. As an aside, if I had the powers, I would make his writings compulsory reading for almost all schools and universities at all levels. He is one of the greatest Indian heroes, but sadly not remembered at all. In summary, he showed that in the British colonial era before Macaulay uh, destroyed the Indian education system, the schools and colleges were proportionate to the population. We were in fact as good and perhaps better than the English in the number of attending students, time spent in schools, the quality of teachers, financial support for the students, girls' education, and the subjects taught. We also showed a high percentage of Shudra and other uh, lower caste students as compared to the Brahmin, Kshatriya, and Vaishya communities in many areas. Now, the purpose of uh, English education was in getting trained administrators towards maximization of state revenues or in creation of an admiring Indian social elite in support of the British rule. 
the old indigenous system of education was clearly incapable of doing this some of people like uh, bankim chandra chatterjee swami vivekananda tagore gandhi and lokmanya tilak despite this education rediscovered their roots but many of those educated in the new educational policies derooted completely from the ancient and high culture unfortunately the colonial goals of derooting and deracination continued successfully in the post independent india thanks to the amazing and vicious hold of the communists over our educational policies now uh macaulayism this is a diffuse doctrine and it is not as clear as uh, islamism and christianism it's an intellectual attitude of hindus themselves settling down as a pervasive cultural climate there are no meticulous propagating methods and there is no specified section of indian society as a vehicle however it manages to corrode the soul and social system of a culture now first what does it do first it's a very skeptical attitude towards anything hindu or hindu culture and society any approval would first come only after the western stamp of approval western society and culture represent progress reason and science and any form of rejection would also again require western evaluation and rejection first peculiarly it will compare the hindu ideals and institutions from the past with what the west has achieved in its recent histories of the 19th and the 20th centuries macaulayism also judges the west by the ideals and utopias it proclaims from time to time but judges the hindus with a reference to the present hindu society and culture just emerging from a long struggle finally hindu traditions are under evaluation by western tools of analysis whatever may be in the current fashion indigenous tools to reverse gazes become unscientific and irrelevant now this process of constant approving rejecting judging and justifying leads to a lifestyle and thinking where western models are preferable to indigenous designs other ideas like a secular and socialist state planned economy casteless society scientific culture which are but transferred western narratives become thoroughly ingrained into the thinking parliament institutions public and private enterprises uh, infrastructures of power and transport medicine public health housing education entertainment dress fashion food furniture crockery table manners and even the way we gesticulate grin and smile must mirror the west now a macaulayist does give the occasional privilege to take some pride at indian heritage provided kalidasa and samudra gupta become india's shakespeare or napoleon respectively hindu architecture native literature sculpture painting music dance drama are patronized uh, only after some western experts actually approve of them for them the rate of growth of the gross national product and the standard of living become the only criteria for progress there is a tolerance towards religion so long as it's a private indulgence some of its rituals and festivities do add some color to life but majorly religious is religious obscurantism primitive superstition and a creator of communal riots some develop an extreme antipathy towards traditional hindu practices uh, but remember macaulays are hindus now when faced with any facts for needing uh, hindu self defense the denouncement would include terms like alarmist communalist chauvinist and fascist the aggressor becomes a poor deprived and down 
trodden majority, minority whom the Hindus refused to recognize as equal citizens. A McCallist would also assign to the Hindus an inescapable moral responsibility to rescue their less privileged brethren. There's also a focus on the injustices and oppressions in their own social system. The favorite, uh, of course, would be the caste, but it can include marriage, dowry, food habits, and so on. Social reforms in Hindu society have happened uh, within its fold without rejecting the priests or its scriptures. It never occurs to them that social reform is a slow process, and in the meanwhile, a society has a right to self-defense in the interests of its sheer survival. The pure definition of secular progressive, abusing the majority, but appeasing the minority. This is what is happening in India, unfortunately. Now, why do these Hindus take a neutral or hostile stance? Is there a reason for this? There's primarily no regard to Hindu society as an indispensable benefactor. Most of the Macaulists have already managed to monopolize much of the political, administrative, and media power in the country. This in addition to the best jobs in business and in the professions. They're comfortable in their economic, social, and political shells. The progressive West approve, applaud, and invite these people as speakers and well-paid lecture tours. They, in turn, would uh, enlighten Western audiences about the true state of things in this unfortunate country. Now, the final or the big four are the communists. Capitalist societies base themselves on uh, a diversity. Parliamentary democracy, a free press, a free trade unions are part of the free and capitalist societies. However, communist societies froze Marxist philosophy into a closed system of orthodoxy, which in turn become another monotheism claiming to be the only doctrine and the only savior. Experience has clearly shown that the worst regimes have been the communist regimes, which have been totalitarian enemies of human freedom. The problem with socialism, written by Thomas D. Lorenzo, is a wonderful resource to understand the horrors of socialism and communism the world over. Communism. Now, communism was basically an instrument of Soviet foreign policy for world domination. The Chinese split with Russia splintered the world communist monolith. Communism inevitably conflicts with positive nationalism, guiding the country's internal and external policies. Positive nationalism implies using one's own cultural heritage and socio-political traditions to deal with its issues. They can be an exchange of ideas, but rarely does it entail complete replacement of its own ideals by an alien ones. Now, communism is uh, not a residue of foreign rule, but remains a malignant alien imposition. Ideologically, it is an extension of Macaulism as both have common roots in modern West by the varied philosophies of materialistic metaphysics, uh, uh, sociology, utilitarian ethics, and so on. In this worldview, man is essentially a homo fabricus, a tool maker, and is mainly about a centralized economy and an urbanized society. This is the reason why Macaulism always remains defensive and apologetic regarding communism. Now, communism, communists took direct orders from the Soviet Union and then briefly from China. The Communist Party of India initially opposed the British imperialism and the Muslim League. In the freedom fight, the party formed, in fact, a revolutionary fringe of the nationalist movement. The Congress Social Party even allowed its platform for use by the Communist Party of India, which was working under the British ban. 
Now, the contradictory and flipping policies and dissonance with positive nationalism in India became rapidly evident during the Second World War. Arun Shauri discusses this in his wonderful detail in his book, The Only Fatherland. In 1941, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union and almost simultaneously, the Britain India movement started in August 1942. The communists in the Congress now opposed the Quit India Resolution as an imperialist war uh, became now a people's war and an enemy of Britain invading a friend became a friend. So that's how the British landed up being the friends of the Communist Party. And in what British imperialism, British democracy, the Muslim was just fighting became a legitimate expression of Muslim nationalism. Freedom movement became a collaboration with fascism. Bose became a, a Nazi and a Japanese rat since he was on the side of Germany. Uh, they started spying for the British secret police on revolutionary people. Intellectuals like Adhikari and Ashraf blueprinted the case for Pakistan with academic arguments and sentimental slogans. In the meantime, the government patronized, financed and fraternized with the Communist Party of India and helped it attain the stature of an independent political party. Now, the communist contribution towards Pakistan is next only to the Muslim world. The Soviet Union wanted a base after British departure, but the plan failed. Unfortunately, Pakistan became a base for American interventionism instead. Ever since, the communists blamed the partition on those very forces of positive nationalism fighting the Muslim League. Now, what does communism do? Uh, it First, it uh, targets the Sanatana Dharma as superstition, obscurantism, and priestcraft. Second, it denounces the Dharma Shastras as repositories of uh, primitive prescriptions, uh, Machiavellian morality, uh, caste oppression, untouchability, degradation of women, Brahmin domination, lack of social responsibility, patriarchy, and all such things. Third, it condemns all Indic philosophies as Brahmanical conspiracies to suppress Lokayata or atheism. Uh, in fact, the only darshana worth talking about. And Buddha, for all practical purposes, was preaching Marxism, except for his unmindful lapse into transmigration. Now, the most important and vicious and malignant, uh, I suppose, exercise in uh, post independent India uh, of communist historians has been to obliterate Hindu history and whitewash Islamic history. They have ridiculed every hero, period, episode and precedent in which the Hindus can take pride. The golden Hindu age of the imperial Guptas became a myth. Maharana Pratap, Shivaji and Guru Gobind Singh converted as local rebels for some petty personal ends. There was a complete whitewash of the deeds of bloodthirsty Islamic conquerors and despicable despots and condone their crimes either by balancing them with many good deeds or as part of empire building. Arun Shauri, uh, kind of uh, eminent historians, is a wonderful book to further understand this shameful aspect of communist historians. Also dangerous for the communist uh, anthropologists and sociologists who are happily theorizing a class, class interest into all Hindu social institutions, customs and manners. There is never an allowance for any pride in ancient Indian heritage. Some communist scholars realize painfully the consequences of putting forward thoughts of pride when the party simply expelled them. Now, what are the methods which these people use? 
they tend to use three chief methods to denigrate the advocates of positive nationalism. The most important is by using a difficult to decipher language that we speak, a very difficult language specific to the communities. Sitaram Goelji discusses this extensively in another fantastic book, India's Political Parliaments. Communist movement termed as patriotic or democratic, collaborators as progressive people, Islamic imperialism becomes secularism, positive nationalism becomes Hindu communalism and chauvinism and so on. Secondly, they would constantly discover conspiracies against the working class and the minorities. Hindu communalism and chauvinism, landlordism, forces of obscurantism, revivalism, uh, imperialism. So they're very fond of using this uh, wonderful words uh, to uh, vent to their feelings. And third is a very strong language of spherology, which uh, Sitaram Goel very uh, wonderfully describes in his book. So they can be mild to wild, like uh, Mahatma Gandhi was called a bourgeois scoundrel. Rabindranath Tagore became a Magil Dalal. Patel and Nehru were called fascist bureau and uh, advocates of positive nationalism gets various labels as communalists, chauvinists, fascist murderers of minorities, perpetrators of genocide, reactionaries and revivalists. So obviously many times the countering language becomes difficult. Now for a long time before and after independence, the finances came from foreign countries for these communists, especially Russia. These cover considerable costs of maintaining presses, periodicals, and publishing houses for managing academia to get official stamps of approval uh, for their philosophies, for maintaining a huge cadre-based movement, and for maintaining front organizations amongst trade unions, peasantry, students, youth, women, artists, writers, and poets. Plenty of money also goes in organizing conferences, congresses, mass meetings, and demonstrations. Amazingly, the publishing houses uh, run into deep losses and they offer the books at huge unworkable discounts. Uh, I remember a lot of this uh, Russian books or this uh, coming at very, very low prices, beautiful books, well known, but uh, the finances yet never seem to trouble them. Despite the lack of size and significance politically, after slogans, money never seems to show scarcity. However, the double speak language constructs it as a movement for the poor, by the poor, and for the poor. Now, uh, basically, in kind of uh, concluding, the four forces are come together for Hindu society to seeds today, say Sitaram Goel. Hindus need to understand them to defend ourselves. Particularly, Islamism and communism have forged uh, to malign Hindu society and keep it on the defensive. In the 1940s, the Communist Party of India came out openly in support of the demand for Pakistan. The Communist Party once directed its Muslim members to join a Muslim League to provide intellectual muscle to, to the, to the two-nation theory. The Hindu Communists inside the Indian National Congress joined them to brand all those opposing partitions as communalists. Now, <clears throat> communism had its earlier respect restored following the death of Sadar Patel, unfortunately. It was to, it, it could rehabilitate Islamism under the guise of, guise of progressivism. The Aligarh Muslim University, a hotbed of Islamism in the pre-partition days, became the hideout of progressive Muslim professors. Muslim poets and writers, once thundering from the Muslim League platform, now flocked to the Progressive Writers Association and other communist fronts. 
these professors poets and writers put across islamism in their newly acquired language of progressivism their first victory was in blocking hindi as a national language the communists argued that india being a conglomeration of nationalities there was for each its distinct language and identity similar arguments like used for pakistan previously islamism revived urdu as the great language of culture and refinement which was at the risk of vanishing nobody especially the communists bothered to examine urdu culture and refinement as a legacy of decadent muslim courts and a frivolous muslim aristocracy there was also no investigation of the heavy persian and arabic influences on urdu which made it incomprehensible even to educated people today the recognition of urdu as a second language is a distinct hallmark of secularism in a country now secularism it was a solution for europe at a certain time of its distinct history jacob de rouvre's classic book europe india and the limits of secularism deals with this briefly india had its own mechanisms uh, to deal with pluralism but there was an inappropriate transfer of a western solution to indian issues with disastrous consequences the cry became of hindus occupying high positions denying the poor muslims their rightful place public officials performing hindu rituals or visiting holy places became anti secular easily by both communists and islamists islamism in the meantime started parading endless economic social political and cultural grievances backed by progressive hindu intellectuals the indian national congress and other political parties bent over backwards to appease islamism in the name of secularism the most remarkable achievement of islamism and communism in close cooperation has been to reinterpret indian history till it was empty of any content to nourish a nation the solid aim has been to attack the theory that hindus have always been uh, has never been a nation and sabotage and also sabotage the proposition that hindus can lead the way for everyone into a broad nationalism fortunately christianism was not an equal and direct partner in this united front however on the hindi issue and on the character of secularism it did play its part the united front functions under the protective umbrella of nicolism which in turn never fails to incorporate the slogans of the front in its own respectable language christianism finds a ready access to mccallism because the missionary schools and colleges greatly attract the middle and the upper hindu classes thus christianism through its educational institutes provides a main recruiting ground for the mccallists so finally the uh, so who is the most dangerous perhaps the uh, mccallists who remain diffuse uh, ill defined but influential every society including hindu has its sort of has its quota of social levels however hindu society remains retains its great spiritual moral cultural and intellectual traditions the hindu victim of mccallism is aware of the evils but not of the doctrines which do not sanction the evils or even help in eradicating them a mccallist is also ignorant of evils prevalent in non hindu society sometimes sanctioned by their own doctrines it does not question evidence to the contrary when islamism claims the brotherhood of men or christianism claims the spirit of love and charity or when communism talks about utopian equal societies the horrors in russia and china is all quite evident even as the children of communists fly to us for a better life great hindu thinkers reformers and leaders did not become anti hindus to reform their society 
The Macaulays, however, never enter social action and reform, but remain as armchair scholars, borrowing jargon to explain Hindu society. Now, the nature of this united front is negative and inimical to Hindu society. The participants agree that Hindu society should die and disappear, but there is no agreement on what sort of a society should replace the Hindu society. The three ideologies feed on different limbs of Hindu society. Christianism focuses on the Hindu tribals, arguing for the non-Hindu status of all tribals. Islamism concentrates on including the Dalits in their fold, not remembering that Dr. B. R. Ambedkar was most critical of the Muslims in his Pakistan and partition of India, a book which the Islamists do not want to talk about. Communism, of course, targets the fashionable upper and middle classes of Hindu society. Their penetration into academia and media is beyond the political significance of the communists. So, to conclude, so since 1200, exclusive, intolerant, and imperialistic ideologies have insistently attacked Hindu culture and traditions physically and intellectually. Of the four forces, two are religious ideologies and two include derooted Hindus. India is secular and democratic because India is Hindu. Dr. Balagangadara says that Indian traditions are the most important philosophy of an indifference to differences. This transcends the tolerances and acceptances which religions can maximally achieve. This is the Hindu way of life and is perhaps a solution for not only India but for the rest of the world too. To all this, we can add the colonial consciousness of Dr. Balu, which is a permanent altering of the intellectual framework of even well-intentioned Hindus. The violence of colonialism arrives in a different time frame here. Colonial consciousness looks at India the way Westerners looked at us. It understands or solves its issues or even mold ourselves in the frameworks which are provided with the colonial narratives. Sanatana Dharma has a solutions, but only if we can save it from disappearing under the onslaught of the hostile forces. There is no need to hate or drive guilt complexes into anyone, equating individuals to group ideologies and actions, and then trying to avoid frictions by distorting history has been the persistent mistake of our thinkers. The Islamic invasions or the Goa inquisitions has nothing to do with the present-day Muslims and the Christians. People of all faiths are the flesh and blood of the country, and individuals are never a problem. Our best friends are Muslims, Christians, communists, and even Macaulists, but we love them all. But there's a need to save ourselves before saving the world, and for this, we need to understand the hostile forces which are placed against us. Thank you very much. I just had a, a view about one of the points that you had mentioned about the reformist movements um, in which you mentioned Brahmo Samaj as well. So yeah. Brahmo Samaj has actually been critiqued for being uh, not so much of a reformist and even uh, these movements which uh, denounced Hindu rituals in a sense. So when Hindu rituals are denounced, it's actually denouncing a part of the culture itself because our rituals have so much of uh, you know a deeper sort of significance in spiritual um, but so that, in a sense, was also, in a way, feeding into the Macaulism while not looking like as it was doing that. That was just an observation that I had. Lots of recent revelations have come about um, Raja Ramohan Roy as well, about how his own leanings towards Christianity uh, were quite strong. So it's quite disappointing for people like us, exactly the kind of people you talk about who have, you know, grown up 
um, in, in Christian schools, you know, we've been fed all this and then we've had to sort of unlearn many things, so to speak. But um, coming back to what you were saying and what you mentioned also about uh, breaking India and all these forces, which are still at work, Islamo-communism is back. It's back again and it's back in the world, one would say. We can see it and how it's wreaking havoc everywhere, whether it is in Europe or, you know, in the social media um, or everywhere. So what are the solutions? In India, for example, there is a lot of constitutional amendments that are required. Primarily the one, the right to convert, uh, you know, in religions and many other points. So what do you think, sir, is a way forward? What can we do to help us out of the situation? Because Hindus as such being diverse, disparate, not organized. Yeah. We have a problem faced with these really um, organized, um, uh, you know, powerful, rich religions. Yeah, so exactly. What do you suggest? What do we do? Yeah, I, I, I am a follower of the Balaganandara school. And I think uh, we should really try to read uh, Balu and understand when he talks about uh, colonial consciousness and when he talks about religions and traditions in India. Because I think the fundamental mistake, I mean, uh, when you talk about Rahul, Raja Ramon Roy or, or kind of Brahma Samaj or Arya Samaj, what essentially happened is they kind of accepted what the Westerners talked about us. You know, they said we were primitive. They said we are primitive. They thought we had a pure Hindu core to which added a lot of superstitions, idolatry. So they wanted to get back to the pure Upanishads, clearing off all the superficial junk, all the priestcraft. So this is basically you are molding yourself in the framework which was provided by the colonials. That is one. Second is the most important thing I think we should understand is we do not have religions in our country. Hinduism is a word which is a kind of an experiential entity for the colonials and they have converted a mass of traditions. Traditions are what constitutes Indian culture and the experience of the uh, colonials, they constructed Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism. And as Balu says, you are in a very brief manner. What we have in India are traditions and religions, they adapted by becoming traditions. And the moment you are trying to convert traditions into religions, the, the traditions lose their flexibility. They become, they lose their absorptive power, uh, the power and they become more uh, kind of uh, fundamental in its attitude. So from a very liberal indifference approach, it becomes fundamentalist. So basically the secularism, which is applied to India after converting its traditions into religions and then applying secularism. In fact, a point will come where yeah, Hindutva, Hindu fundamentalism, everything is going to rise as a paradox. So what we need to focus on research is we should try to kind of understand India as a country, which has a lot of traditions and each one is free to do what he's like, like to do. Like it's, it's flexible at the same time. It's, quite conserving. So this is very briefly about, I think, uh, this is where a solution lies because we are misunderstanding Indian culture and whatever narratives the, the colonials told us by way of religions, by way of the caste theory, like uh, Balu says, it's colonial consciousness in a very, very refined thesis. The elements that uh, come straight from uh, Goel himself, I recognized, but um, I especially was interested in the input um, from the Balagangadhara school. And um, one critique I've had already for years, and, and it's confirmed now, is that 
they um, put a bit too much emphasis on the fact of Christianity. <clears throat> like, and this is this is very often in 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 um, in Hindu circles these days. <clears throat> they see uh, Western culture too much through the prism of Christianity. So that, of course, is there, but it's been waning for quite some time. And, um, and you can't reduce everything to it. You know, there is, there is far too much talk about, yeah, this is Christian. Like, like, for instance, in the Aryan invasion debate, people who say, yeah, uh, linguistics is an evolute of Christian theology. Now, come on, that's, that's not true. <laughs> and um, so Goalji was quite well informed about Western culture, and he knew these evolutions inside Western culture. And so the, that that emphasis in his case was not there. Um, first of all, he saw Western culture as something larger than just Christianity. But secondly, he also laid more emphasis on the second uh, major aggressor against Hindu civilization, namely Islam. You see, uh, of course, he... He was very forthright and very well informed and so on in his critique of Christianity. Nevertheless, in terms of volume, in terms of thoroughness, his critique of Islam is, is far more important. Maybe also because it's far more original. Christianity had already been criticized very thoroughly in the West. And uh, so that was not so new in India, whereas the critique of Islam is very new, is very. Um, innovative and he also was aware at that time that the greatest danger for for hinduism would come from islam also because of his personal experiences during the partition uh maybe that's not true anymore maybe christianity has sophisticated itself to the extent of being a, a, a more serious danger now some people argue that uh, but so at any rate, this this difference in emphasis is the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, so the Balagangadhara school is very useful. It uh, it's it um, it gives a presence of this Hindu critique inside the academic world that they can't ignore. They they may be able to ignore me. They can't ignore Balagangadhara. Um, so that's very good. But nevertheless, there is a difference in emphasis. Uh, of which I don't want to like predict where that is going, but at any rate, it's is there. It has to be noticed. Thanks. Well, uh, Goalji himself uh, never, to my uh, to my knowledge, um, ever uh, proposed to outlaw religion uh, or outlaw conversion. You see, of course, he did document how the missionaries lobbied very successfully during the time of the Constituent Assembly to have this right included in the Constitution. So for them, it was quite important. But, you know, to prohibit conversion <clears throat> is something that never existed in Hindu states in the past. You know, of course, the kind of conversion challenge that they were faced with uh, also didn't exist. Uh, there was no missionary movement. 
And uh, in the case of Islam, of course, there were conversions, but they were of a different type. They were mostly under force or under social pressure. And at any rate, you see, he didn't think, and you know, this is this I can say from private conversations. He didn't believe that this uh, <clears throat> prohibition would uh, really change the situation, because the missionaries are past masters at getting around that type of prohibition. In China, you see, far more than in India, the law is taken absolutely seriously, is enforced. You can't get around it. And they are very much more firmly against conversion, against Christianity than India is. And yet, and yet the Christian churches can claim millions and millions of converts. So, you see, to enact such a law in India won't mean anything on the ground uh, unless, you know, some dictator comes to power and he starts to get really, you know, serious about it. But even then, you know, world opinion and so on will be so much on the side of, of the missionaries that still, you see, Hindu politicians will, will lose their, you know, their, their, their willpower to, to enforce this. And again, nothing will come of it. So, you see, rather than talk about prohibiting conversions, it's better to devise a strategy that really makes a difference on the ground, starting with doing what Goel himself did, namely providing the right information about Christianity. You see, once you understand, for example, the workings of the solar system, you know that it's not true that the Earth is in the middle and the sun turns around the Earth. From that point onwards, no amount of propaganda for geocentrism is going to convert, uh, convince you that the, the old school was right after all. No, you just have grown up. And uh, so similarly, if you know the truth about Christianity, you are immune to propaganda for it. So I, I think that that was a more, uh, more promising solution rather than these unimaginative and ultimately non-workable and counterproductive prohibitions. Thank you. What? Wonderful, wonderful. First point which I'd like to make is that Islamic imperialism had a limited effect on our uh, Hindu ethos or Hindu culture. They were mainly physical in nature, atrocities were mainly physical in nature. But British imperialism had far more deepening effect on the Hindu society. Uh, uh, in this respect, I'd like to elaborate further. When you say Macaulism uh, as uh, one of the besieging force, I think we have to also add one more force. If we take Macaulism separately, in fact, it should be taken separately. One more force needs to be the Nehruvian state. That's another besieging force which has caused the Hindu society to get seized. So there are many examples like the uh, Mr. Bhargava was asking about the Religious of Freedom uh, Act, etc. Article 30, Article 25, Article 26, so many other Supreme Court judgments and interpretations of the constitutional provisions all have been happened at the, uh, uh, in a way, from the state side uh, on the Hindu society as such. So that's another point which uh, I would like to add to this uh, talk. And the next point, which I like to uh, mention here is the role of communism. See, what 
most important part is what brought communism to the Indian uh, scene. And that was the Nehru's uh, infatuation or the instant love uh, uh, for communism of the Stalin style or the socialism of the Stalin style. Right from the time 1928, when he first time visited Soviet Union, he was just enamored by what Stalin was doing. And from that time onwards, he was he always had a very uh, kind of a uh, soft uh, corner for communists. And it is on his behest that they started gaining strength in the Congress, uh, pre-independence Congress, and later post-independence in the positions of power. And we saw it all happening right in front of us, that Gandhian values or Gandhism, if you can call it, just faded away soon after his death. Communism, it continued, it, it perpetuated itself. It still continues and continues to bother all of us. That's another point uh, which I'd like to mention. And the last point, uh, I think we should stop using uh, religion for Hinduism. We should start, we must all use it as you say, part and part of it. It should be dharma. Dharma should be used. All religion one said is dharma one said, because one basic difference is Hinduism is not based on faith, rather fixed faith. It gives you a diversion of rather very wide choice of faith. Uh, whereas the when we call religion, it's fixed to one faith propagated by that particular religion. So Hinduism is uh, not based on faith, but more of a question of a life, living. So that permanent difference and then is brought out to everybody's notice. We continue to misinterpret that. Uh, these are my submissions. Thank you so much. Thank you. See, uh, it, would be a, it would be a bit political though. So uh, people have been speaking more about how the government has not been able to do anything about the right to education act, which is which seems to be highly discriminative against Hindus um, or the majority uh, in particular. So, sir, what are your views um, about the government? Let's say, uh, how do you assess uh, their steps in this direction, in the direction of rewriting history books? I have absolutely no clue about Right to Education Act. I mean, I think it's uh, Dr. Elst is there, but history writing, yes, we have definitely gone wrong after independence because uh, I think as Arun Shauri shows in his books, eminent historians and other books where how we, the entire academia was captured by the communists after independence. And this was with the active support of the political parties who kind of uh, chose to only get the education into their uh, you know, the, the ministries and all uh, went into their hands and they guided the entire education policy of post-independent India for almost six decades. So that has been extremely, uh, 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 which has turned uh, entire generations into believing uh, something very, uh, what is true about Indian history and a history which uh, does not generate pride in your country I think that history somewhere is uh, wrong uh, to a lot of. Uh, yeah. How do we stop, you know, or put to end this incentivized conversion which is being happening? Uh, as an example, uh, one of my friends, uh, he, his his one of his relatives actually, they were running into some losses in business, and uh, church helped them with financial. Um, they they helped them financially and with the promise that they would conversion. So as a result, the whole family got converted. So this is one question. Uh, second question is, 
uh, is the present day government um, you know indifferent to hindu cause of course we know the previous governments uh, by design probably appeasement policy and all uh, they were not doing enough and or rather they were running and kind of an agenda but is the present day government being indifferent we are now crossing uh, we are not crossed seven years uh, of their you know uh, ruling uh, uh, ruling years so so what is your opinion about these two questions I, these are i think very difficult questions i i don't think that this question is uh, in the purview of the talk uh, but uh, what the bjp is doing or what the bjp is not doing for the hindus a lot of see bjp has uh, i mean i am not a political reader of uh, situations but uh, hindus are unhappy in a sense that uh, it has uh, not done enough uh, like freeing of the hindu temples i think that's a very important thing which uh, the bjp has completely failed there history writing uh, it's all it's in the second term and no none, none of the history has been changed and uh, like they could not uh, counter intellectually whatever has been uh, set forth by the, uh, the other communist narratives uh, but i think sitaram goelji himself was not very fond of the bjp or the kind of their attitude uh, and a lot of people believe that uh, maybe as a political party there are more ideologues than intellectuals who can really understand uh, the hindu traditional society and give a real intellectual uh, counter uh, to the narratives but again again dr elst is there so i'm very scared to speak in front of him so i suppose uh, he should be able to tell you better well i'd like to say something about the um the um a right to education act because it illustrates very well a point that uh, goalji insisted on um the this was voted under the congress communist combine the first uh, manmohan singh government <coughs> uh, first of all it shows how they the secularists absolutely mean business they came into power and they immediately set out to change laws in according to their vision that's what the bjp has not done you know all these modi bhakts have continually been inventing excuses for the bjp's inaction saying that they need time and so on you see if you mean business you prepare your plans while in opposition the evening you come to power you start implementing them <coughs> but you see what is most important here to note is that the bjp has no no consciousness you see there are many highly qualified people inside the bjp engineers and so on not so much historians but okay you see there are people who could do it but fact is that they don't they don't care you see they come to power and they're proud of oh now we are going to refute all the people who say we are not secular look how secular we are we can appease even more than congress has done uh, so you see of that the 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 right to education act is a very very consequential case in point so keshi spoke about incentivized conversions which is going on uh, with the missionary activities uh, i'm not sure uh, do you want to address that question or do you want to uh, just let it pass uh conversions again uh is going to cause friction and uh, 
See, again, as Dr. Balu says, in a society, in a traditional society where conversions don't exist in a traditional society, uh, they are, uh, don't exist, they're unethical and almost illegal. And in such a society, if you are uh, kind of uh, allowing somebody uh, for a conversion, it is bound to generate frictions. So basically, as an Indian traditional land, uh, the concept of conversion, the truth values uh, from one faith to another, you try to kind of believe that this God is superior to another God, that doesn't exist in Indian traditions. I can be a Vaishnavite, I can go to a Shiva temple, I can, I can enter a Buddhist temple, I can go to a mosque, but I can very well retain what I am. That is what traditions do. So that uh, kind of uh, importance to the truth value which exists in religions doesn't exist in Indian traditions. So Indian traditions always find it difficult uh, for the concept of uh, conversion. So incentivized conversions is a part of this, uh, this thing and that is bound to raise a lot of uh, issues with uh, the Hindus or Dharmis, Sanatana Dharmis. Uh, Dr. Kupal, this is just uh, connected again with what um, Surendraji had asked and what uh, Mr. Arun had also commented, just precisely about uh, the conversion point, which is actually a very important point, because like uh, another person also had said, incentivized conversion is happening, and believe me, it's happening at all levels. In the South, you have what are called crypto-Christians. You know, I'm from South India. They walk around with Hindu names, but they're all Christian. They avail of all the benefits under whichever SCST you know, it's it's a very, very big uh, problem. It's happening now in Uttar Pradesh as well. In the last couple of years, it's been going on with my, my own maids, relatives were attempted to be converted here in Delhi. And we all had to actually make an attempt to sort of bring them back. It's happening big time. So what we actually need to advocate for now is just like this free our temples campaign. We need to advocate, I believe, and I don't know if anybody else would be in agreement, to take out that conversion clause and bring in an amendment so that conversion does not happen because we need to put our civilization as a civilization, which is the oldest civilization, as an, and as under threat, rather than as having, oh, one billion people, which we always say, because that number, as you're aware, sir, is shrinking. Every census one census, there is a shrinkage. And the others are not even reporting that they have converted. So to the extent that we don't really know, uh, you know what's happening, what are your views on that? Do you think that, you know, an amendment to that and strong sort of, you know, uh, punitive action to be taken against uh, conversion? Yeah, important, but uh, how much uh, we can achieve it as Dr. Elst has already pointed out that uh, conversions, uh, but if we understand our, uh, I think it's a, it's a very big uh, uh, topic for discussion, I think, conversions and how to stop it and all that. Uh, much beyond the scope of this uh, talk. But, uh... As a parent, I would like to tell a few observations. My children, they have been to schools and colleges. So just one or two points I would like to tell. Uh, when it comes to Christian faith, when it comes to Islamic faith, the students, children of their school and colleges, they are very well organized, very well organized. Everything depends on the ideology, what is right, what is wrong. Now, I will give an example. Uh, for example, we have a neighbor who is also a college student. For example, George Reddy is basically a very fashionable name. Now, he is a Hindu. The elder son has joined Christianity. He takes pride in that. And he says, uh, uncle, don't call me by my Hindu name. Call me by my Christian name. Fine. Now, 
आइडियोलॉजी इज सो इम्बेडेड इन दैट कि वॉट इज राइट वॉट इज रॉन्ग ही पार्टिसिपेट्स इन गणेश पूजा ही पार्टिसिपेट्स इन एवरीथिंग एंड ही फील्स दैट यस इट इज ग्रेट दैट आई एम नॉट इन टू अ क्रिश्चियनिटी थिंग आई हैव मोर लिबरल थिंकिंग सो दिस आइडियोलॉजी दैट बींग कन्वर्टेड टू क्रिश्चियनिटी having the benefits as well as participating in temple activities and taking pride in that everything is on the ideology part and what is right what is wrong when we go to schools and colleges there comes an advantage in christianity and muslim thing for example my daughter has very good christian friends as well as muslim friends they are very good with my daughter but if we see the status of their uh, whatsapp and all we feel afraid are my daughter uh, is basically friends with them but they are very good friends for example when it comes to contribution of some finances in colleges they are the first to basically contribute my daughter has to in fact uh, go to each and every hindu student care your contribution i have done please give me back they are very but when it comes to ideology they are so well prepared for a particular question they have an answer same thing with christian uh, students they have an answer for everything and they don't feel bad about for example for us it may feel are why is it it is wrong but their in ideologically point of view they feel that this is right and they stick to that point and they are very good when it comes to helping people for example my neighbor wanted an admission in uh, hospital they have a very good network they are the first people to come out and help they are the first people to come out and help muslims christian students and all they are very well organized but this is where we lack uh, uh, for example isha or samad organization that uh, help us in taking pride Uh, children taking pride okay we are part of isha na otherwise we are lacking in these things when it comes to school students of hindus and college i don't know whether i am able to explain properly but i just try to share my experience thank you thank you